coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. What we have seen in the, in the past few years is an organization known as Biologos, um, and, uh, they, which, ha, which is basically attempting to reconcile evangelicalism as a whole with evolution. And what I would say is trying to replace evangelicalism's general opposition to evolution with a new uh, evangelical evolutionary consensus. Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is June 1st, 2012, and this is broadcast number 13 of this podcast. And it is a podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. We try to do this every week. Uh, Last week we didn't have one because I was out of town. But this week we have um, an interesting topic lined up, and we'll get to that information in just a second. If you do have any questions about Greenville Seminary, want to find out more information, you can simply go to our website at gpts.edu and you'll find all the information you can possibly want about our school, our distinctives, our purpose, and so forth right there on our website. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter if you are so inclined to use those social networking mediums that exist out there. As I indicated, we do have an interesting discussion lined up today. It's a timely discussion. It it comes right before um, the General Assembly season for Presbyterian churches across the country. And so today I'm I'm thankful to welcome Wes White onto the program. I've interviewed him many years ago. Well, I shouldn't say many years ago. It was a a while back, a couple years ago, when I did a podcast under another name, which we won't mention. And um, today we have him on to talk about the issue of creation and all the things that are swirling about especially in the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination that I'm a part of, and of course the denomination that my guest is a part of. Uh, is a, a part of. So again, uh, we're going to have Wes White on the program today. He is a pastor at New Covenant Presbyterian Church and received his MDiv from Mid-America Reform Seminary. So Wes, it's good to have you on again and talk about this time a little different topic than we talked about last time. Yes, thank you. So we're talking about the creation issue. Um, in recent days, this issue has um, has gained a certain head of steam, I guess, and it's not without some background. It's not without some historical precedent. It's not without some some uh, touching back to some of our roots, in fact, as Presbyterians. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of that broader background as far as it relate as as it relates to the creation issue in general? maybe more specifically as it relates to our issue that we're facing even today? Well, I think all churches have had to deal with this issue, mm-hmm. obviously, because uh, uh, Darwinism has become uh, ensconced as uh, the, the dominant view in Western civilization. So each church has had to wrestle with how are they going to respond to that because it, it certainly, on the face of it, seems to call into question the truth of uh, the account in Genesis and so that that's been a significant debate. And there's but there's some unique. Uh, we as the a PCA come from the back, our background is in the uh, Presbyterian Church 
that was in America, and then as it divided into northern and southern churches. And the, the PCUS, uh, Presbyterian Church of the United States, was the southern church. And uh, this issue came up actually in the 19th century and uh, came to fruition with a man named uh, James Woodrow, and um, I just I should let you know that I'm not necessarily the expert on this thing. I just want to point you to a few resources. Uh, there's a lot of ins and outs of polity and stuff that that uh, make anybody's head dizzy. Mm-hmm. This was actually discussed at the uh, at the creation conference, I believe, in 1999 at Greenville, and there were two lectures on uh, the James Woodrow case, <laughs> and. Uh, you can find those on Sermon Audio, um, and they're all available. And so I, if you're interested, I encourage you to listen to that. And then there's also an article on it by Frank Smith on the uh, uh, Contra Mundum website. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, there, there's a lot more we can say about this. But suffice it to say that the end result of it was that uh, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the U.S. Uh, condemned his view and made uh, a statement in 1886 that Adam's body was directly fashioned by Almighty God without any natural animal parentage of any kind out of matter previously created from nothing. And they said that any doctrine at variance therewith is a dangerous error inasmuch as in the methods of interpreting Scripture it must demand and the consequences which by fair implication it will involve, it will lead to the denial of doctrines fundamental to the faith. Mm-hmm. And so that was repeated then in the context of a complaint uh, from uh, Woodrow and uh, in 1888. I may have some of these details uh, a little bit off, but uh, you can go back and get it. But the, that statement was accurate, and that statement was repeated in 1888. And then in 1924... Uh, the Presbytery of Mecklenburg asked the uh, General Assembly to reaffirm a former deliverance on evolution in 1886. So they reaffirmed that same statement in 1924. Hmm. So so the the old Southern Presbyterian Church took a pretty strong stand against any idea that Adam was created by evolution uh, that he was anything other than the first human being immediately uh, created by God. So that's kind of the that's the background of the PCUS's historic stand against evolution and its reconciliation with Scripture. Wes, when you say, um, and I agree with you, I think this issue is certainly a foundational issue, and and it seems back in even 1886 when the assembly of the PCUS made this declaration. They saw it as a foundational issue, touching on other matters of doctrine. What other matters of doctrine would it affect, I mean, even directly? Well, um, in one of the things I was going to explain uh, l- later was uh, there, there has been a case in the PCA on, on, uh, on theistic evolution in 1991. And in that uh, case... Uh, the issue was, could a man who holds to theistic evolution teach Sunday school? Not could he be a minister or an elder, but could he teach Sunday school? Mm-hmm. And when he was allowed to do so, a woman in the church complained 
and that complaint was brought to the presbytery, and the presbytery said, no, he can't teach Sunday school. And here's, here's what they said. And this will answer your question, I think, very nicely. It says, quote, holding the view of beginnings expressed in theistic evolution is contrary to the fundamentals of our system of doctrine taught in the Word of God and our standards. Such a view destroys the basis of such doctrines as the doctrines of sin, of marriage, of salvation, of covenants, and others. Therefore, such a view cannot be allowed as an exception. Anyone holding such a view must be disqualified from teaching and or ordination in the church." End quote. So I think you got there the, the ideas that it, it affects sin, marriage, salvation, covenants, and others. So it's a fundamental doctrine to our system. Yeah, and, and just for people who are listening to this, and, and you know, we're throwing some terms around here that I'm quite familiar with, and certainly my guest is very familiar with. When we say confessional standards or, or things of that nature, uh, understand what, what we mean. We mean those confessions that the church has vowed to submit to as a secondary rule of authority. That is, that it doesn't supplant the authority of the Bible, but that the confessions that we agree, or we have agreed that these, these confessions, namely the Westminster Confession of Faith, is an accurate summary of what Scripture teaches on the subject. And in fact, there's a whole chapter in the Confession of Faith devoted to this subject where it makes it very clear and very, in two short paragraphs, um, the, the, the biblical view of creation, um, and I would encourage people to read it, chapter 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So when we say things like confessional views, we're talking about our understanding of those two paragraphs um, specifically, but of course the other aspects of the standards, that is the shorter and larger catechism as well as it speaks to the subject. And, and it is a fund, fundamental issue, right, Wes? I mean, if you remove, I mean, I've heard some people say that if you take Genesis off the table, you destroy the entire you, you really destroy the fabric of Christianity. I mean, it's pretty much been torn at its, it torn to shreds. Absolutely. Yeah, you, because it contains, in, in nutshell, everything that flows out of it on the doctrines of salvation, Christ, sin, uh, family as in marriage, and so on. Now, in recent days, um, this issue, and, and, and when I say in recent days, this issue has always been a, a little bit of a, in, in some seasons, it's been more of a thorn in the side of the church. In other seasons, it's been less a thorn. But be that as it may, in recent days, that is in the, the days preceding our 40th General Assembly, which is coming up here rather quickly, um, there's been some, I don't want to say new things brought to the table. I think it's just repackaged old stuff, but that can be debated, I guess. But there's been some issues that have occurred. Can you give us a little bit of a, maybe a summary of what these issues are and and who's, who are the players involved and uh, why is this a problem, if it's a problem? Well, you know, I think uh, before, I, before I touch on that, uh, it might be helpful to go back and show how this was an issue uh, in the founding of the PCA. Sure. Because as, as, I, noted, and I, know, as I noted, the PCUS, uh, took a strong stand against evolution historically. Mm -hmm. But one of the causes of the formation of the PCA, which pulled out of the PCUS, was that uh, the PCUS as a whole 
changed its position on evolution. And um, particularly in 1969, the PCUS uh, repudiated its previous decisions about the immediate creation of Adam and said that there is no contradiction between the theory of evolution and the Bible. And in addition, um, one of the reasons for the separation was the rejection in the church's literature of a literal interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis, including the individuality of Adam and the reality of the fall. And that, that phrase, I just quoted a phrase that was in the PCUS General Assembly after the PCA guys left, and they were saying, here's what we understood the reasons why they were leaving. They said it was because our denominational literature was pr promoting a non-literal interpretation of Genesis that questioned the, individual, the individuality of Adam and the reality of the fall. And, in, and of course, in 1969, as a General Assembly, they had repudiated their position uh, opposing evolution and, um, and, then, and said that we were wrong <laughs> on that, in effect. So, so, what, so what you're saying, then, is that they basically, in one fail swoop, upset the statements that were made originally in 1886, and then in 1924 when they were reaffirmed, now here in 1969, they pretty much turned that on its head and said, ah, that wasn't, we were yeah, wrong yeah. about what we said. Yeah, okay. so, the, so there's a complex of, of issues that are rooted in modernism or liberalism coming, coming into the church, and, and, one of those, and one of those things is evolution. And so evolution is one of the reasons for the uh, opposition to evolution is one of the reasons why uh, the PCA was founded. And that's why it's not surprising to find in 1991 that the SJC would hold up a presbytery decision that says not only can you not be ordained if you hold the theistic evolution, but if you even teach it, you can't even teach it in Sunday school. That just can't be taught in our churches because that's who we are. We've rejected evolution. That's the PCA's identity. Hmm. Well, it does uh, it certainly seems plausible that they would do that um, in 1991, um, but we're many years removed from that SJC decision in 91. Um, what kind of developments occurred have occurred between then and where we stand now? I mean, would you say the PCA is still would still hold that strongly, or have we seen some uh, tremors, as it were, as it pertains to this subject? Well, I think uh, you know some people might look at uh, the uh, ad interim creation study committee uh, that looked at the issue of the creation days mm -hmm. and think that the PCA had gotten looser. Um, on this issue, because they did affirm a diversity on the issue of creation days and their length, um, and so some people might say, "Well, that's see that shows that we're moving away from our roots." But um, actually, I as as I see it, uh, whatever position you may hold onto it, there there was a general acceptance of diversity on this issue from the beginning of the PCA. So I don't see that as a departure from a previous position, whatever you may think of it now on the, the question of the, of the six days of creation. It's not really a change. 
But what we should note is that in the creation study committee report, they made very clear that um, they that Adam and Eve, they said this. Let me just quote from it. They said Adam and Eve were created a special creation. They are the parents of all humanity. Hence, they are not the products of evolution from lower forms of life. So even in that creation study committee, uh, which some have uh, have looked on as, as a compromise because of its allowing for diversity on the uh, um, days, nonetheless, you still see there a statement that affirms the old PCUS position on the immediate creation of Adam, that he's not descended from uh, lower forms of, of life, and that he is the parent of all humanity. So you can't say he's uh, a group of people or just one special hominid uh, chosen from amongst a bunch of hominids and who became the leader of the race. And we'll talk, we can talk about that. But that's, that's not consistent with our creation study report. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that, the creation study report is pretty well known, but I think a lot of people have forgotten that, that in addition to the creation study report, a year earlier, uh, the, the General Assembly had made a, a statement on what their position was on Genesis and on creation. And it says, um, if I could, I'll just quote a couple of these statements that indicate that uh, a similar statement to what the PCUS had said back in the 19th century. Sure. Um, you can find these. Uh, uh, I have them on my website, the PCA General Assembly's 10 Declarations on Creation and Evolution. It's westwhite.net. I'm allowed to do free advertising here. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) uh, In number seven, they said that God made Adam immediately from the dust of the ground and not from a lower animal form, and that God's inbreathing constituted man a living soul in the image of God. Number eight says that God made Eve directly from Adam, Number nine, that the entire human race, with the exception of our Lord Jesus Christ, descended from Adam and Eve by ordinary generation. And ten, that each of the kinds resulted from separate creative acts, and that any genetic development is only within these kinds, thus denying macroevolution. Right. That's, that's a statement of the 27th General Assembly. So that's almost ten years after the SJC case. And so I, what I see from my research is that there's a pretty consistent general allowance for some diversity on the days, but a rejection of any evolutionary view of Adam and a macroevolution. And so I would say that that's pretty consistent, and I would say that would still characterize most of the PCA. Wes, let me back up a little bit, because for those who do not understand Presbyterian polity, um, these declarations, um, they're good, uh, especially the last few um, elements that you just read. But when a General Assembly makes a declaration of this nature, what are they communicating to the denomination? Are they saying that this is an actual, this is what we believe, this is what you must believe, therefore, and if you are outside of the bounds of these things, then you're not free to practice and minister in, in our denomination? I mean, what exactly is the judicial emphasis that these declarations hold for the denomination? Or okay. are these just pious? Is this just, I know we're, we're 
maybe running a little afield from what we talked about off air. But I want people to understand the difference between when a General Assembly makes a statement that is only relevant for that assembly but doesn't have any weight or carry for later assemblies. In other words, um, for lack of a better way of expressing it, pious advice. Um, or does this actually have constitutional weight and authority for further assemblies in the denomination? Okay, well, I think that we might say that it's somewhere in the middle of that. Okay. That it's not, it's not necessarily saying absolutely anyone who disagrees with this must be removed from the denomination immediately. That's not, it's just, it's not, be, not because they're not um, trying to, not because they're not declaring that that, or even saying that that isn't a, a, an outcome that could result, but just because that's not the kind of thing that they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's not really in the, in the right realm. What, what, what we say is that when the General Assembly makes a, a deliverance, as we call it, which is basically just a statement on something, uh, then that must be given due and serious consideration by uh, the General Assembly and the lower courts as they deliberate on topics relative uh, to uh, the ones that the General Assembly has ruled on or discussed or made statements on. So in other words, they can't just ignore what the General Assembly has said. They, can't, they, can say, they could say we disagree with it, but, and let me touch on that in a minute, but they can't just ignore it and say, well, we don't care what they say. And in point of fact, there, is actually, there have actually been cases before our General Assembly that where um, Presbytery's lower courts have actually been ruled to be an error not because they did something different than the General Assembly, but because they didn't show that they gave it due and serious consideration. So, so that so you got to take it seriously, and failure to take it seriously is is a breach of of our um, Presbyterian order. And but at the same time, I do think these things are useful, and they do say a little bit more than that. In that. Someone could go against this and say, well, we think that uh, theistic evolution is okay. Mm-hmm. But what this does is the General Assembly is saying, as it were, to them, you can do that if you want, but recognize there, there's going to be consequences to that because we disagree with you. So in a way, it enables us to make a statement that clarifies where we stand on an issue before discipline is ever done. And some, and some of the results of that, sometimes people separate or leave the denomination or change their view before discipline is ever instituted. So yeah, we've, we've seen that in the past with other issues, certainly. Right. So it's kind of a way of, instead of just, instead of saying, like we might do in the church, if we see a problem in the church, in a local church, that people don't understand well, we see errors or people are not sure where we stand on something, what we might do is preach a series of sermons on it or do a Sunday school on it to make clear where we stand and then try to interact with people on it before we actually begin discipline. So that's, that's kind of how, we're, how, how these things operate in the PCA. So, so in a sense, it's designed to... Um, put certain parameters around the subject. 
Yeah. In other words, this is the fe- your con- this is the fenced-in position. You, you're free to operate within this fence, this backyard with a fence around it. But as soon as you step outside of that fence, then you're not. Now you're outside of the general understanding of what the denomination teaches on whatever subject it may be. It may, in this case, it's creation, in the in the in the historical issue with Adam. But it could be it, it could apply to anything. Right. But but how does that differ from constitutional authority? Well, uh, you know, the constitutional authority is the actual basis of the uh, of of establishing our unity and ministerial fellowship. So so in other words, we wouldn't necessarily say someone is is out of accord with our standards or or with with scripture because they disagree with what the assembly said on a particular point. But we say this is what the assembly says is this is how we're interpreting our constitution. And then we would say no, this is what our constitution says, and you do disagree with that, even if you think you don't. And we're t- we're telling you what our position is on what the constitution says. Okay. So it's actually the constitution that is the basis for um, charges, and of course grounded in scripture itself. Right. Okay. I just want to make that real clear because I mean, I, I mean, even within Presbyterian circles, I've heard people get somewhat confused as to these kinds of matters you know, when a when a study committee releases a report to the general assembly and they accept it or adopt it as received information well what does that mean for the rest of the denomination and and these are issues that people don't always understand how they interact with furthering assemblies with further assemblies that come along and how that impacts the church at lar- at, at at large um, and so forth so I wanted to get that very clear in people's minds that that these declarations that were formed were not, although not part of the Constitution, in other words, they weren't adopted in three-quarters of the Presbyterians voted to accept these as constitutionally binding mandates. They are, however, they, 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 were, they have their seed in the Constitutional, our, our understanding of the Constitutional documents, that is the Confession of Faith, Larger Short of Catechism, and so forth. So... I just want to make that real clear for people because that can be very difficult to get your head around, even for Presbyterians, and I'm one of them, and sometimes it's difficult for me to understand just exactly what kind of authoritative weight do these kinds of things have, and how are they binding on ministers in the church itself now, future ministers, and so forth. So um, I appreciate you. Yeah, well, hopefully I've made it somewhat more clear. I I understand that it's difficult, but I think the simplest analogy is just saying, it's the stand, you think that you have the rules or standards of the church, which we write down is what we hear the Bible saying. Sure. And, that, and then you have the teaching of the church, and uh, that goes on from day to day, from house to house, from uh, week to week in the pulpit. And that needs to be given consideration, though we may disagree with it at times, um, and we analyze it by the Bible, yet that does show where the church stands and how they understand uh, the Bible and uh, the confession that we we confess as the as the summary of the Word of God. Right. All right. So now we're, we're fast forwarding here. We, we talked a little bit about the historical background and 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 I think we could probably sum up the issue with theistic evolution or the issue of evolution um, by simply saying that this is a, this is a, a crossroads the Church approached in its early days of Presbyterianism in the, United, in, in the entire United States, both Northern and Southern Church. Um, eventually, the Southern Church 
turned on its head what they used to believe and decided they didn't believe that anymore and in fact even erred. And so the PCA has come out of the Presbyterian Church U.S., um, and this wasn't the only issue. There were others, um, but this was one of them. And in 1991, the Standing Judicial Commission of the PCA made their statements, upheld basically what the old PCUS held to originally. And now we're here, um, 2012, and we've had some interesting developments in recent days, and I say recent, probably the last two or three years. And um, so where, where are we standing now as far as this subject goes in the PCA? Well, first I would say that I, I think that in, in a sense it's always going to be an issue because mm-hmm. we live in a culture in which evolution is the dominant view. And so there's always going to be the issue of how do we reconcile that with the Bible. But what we have seen in the, in the past few years is an organization known as BioLogos, um, and uh, they, which ha, which is basically attempting to reconcile evangelicalism as a whole with evolution, and w- what I would say is trying to replace evangelicalism's general opposition to evolution with a new uh, evangelical evolutionary consensus so that evolution would be the view of evangelicalism. And it is aggressively promoting that as a viewpoint. And the result is that it has come into, there has been conflict in the church. Um, There was a a professor at RTS, uh, Orlando Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, who adopted the Biologos position and he was removed, and that made um, national news. And so there's, in the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, closely associated with the PCA. And so as this Biologos uh, uh, position has, has gained uh, more and more uh, credibility and uh, um, has become more and more widely known in the uh, United States amongst evangelicals, and it's caused conflict and is continuing to do so uh, today. And that's really been the past couple of years. There was a an issue of Christianity Today, and on the cover of it was a sort of Neanderthal-looking uh, um, hominid, that, uh, and they entitled it The Search for Historical Adam, and they discussed uh, this issue um, with... Um, on of theistic evolution, the search, and they entitled it "The Search for the Historical Adam." Mm-hmm. So now, and and one thing that's important is to understand about the Biologos position is that it, it does not necessarily say that Adam didn't exist, though several of the proponents of it do. What what they um, what Biologos is seeking to do is to create a new consensus in which there is flexibility on the issue of Adam. So whether you deny his existence or whether you affirm it doesn't really make much difference in terms of your standing within evangelicalism. Um, and it's, it's fine if you deny that, and we can allow for diversity on the ways which we reconcile uh, Adam with evolution. So, but one thing they do want to be dogmatic uh, 
upon is is evolution. And so a friend of mine coined a phrase that I think adequately and accurately explains the vision or the method that we see coming out of Biologos, which is basically dogmatic on evolution, flexible on everything else. <laughs> and so I think that that gets at it. It's basically everything, um, everything, every other issue is flexible, whether someone holds to Adam um, or, or believes that he's, he's uh, descended from uh, monkeys or whether he is a group, uh, tribe of hominids that was chosen by God or leader of a tribe or some other way that uh, some, some way of you could have some sort of historical atom that actually exists that God chose, but you've got to get evolution in there. So that's, that's where we stand with Biologos. And um, so the question might be is, what does that have to do with the PCA, right? It could be a question, and I think I'll ask that in a second. But what I want to know, um, from, in your opinion, is how is that really any different from theistic evolution? Oh, it, just sounds, it, it sounds like it's theistic evolution with a bunch of fancier terminology, but it sounds like theistic evolution at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is theistic evolution. It's just um, a, spe- a specific group and movement within uh, evangelicalism, broadly considered, that is known as biologos. Okay. So what does that have to do with the PCA? <laughs> <laughs> well, first, first, even if it, it didn't contact, if there wasn't any connection with the PCA at all uh, in terms of specific individuals who are involved with Biologos, um, I still think we are part of American evangelicalism, and we do recognize a, uh, a sort of evangelical Christendom as, as been our, our, our viewpoint, and that we have an interest in promoting the truth uh, in in America and in American Christianity, and so that's significant for the PCA. But what has really um, come to the fore is that some of these people have contact with the PCA in various ways. So uh, for for several for a while, uh, the director, or I forget his exact position, was a man named Peter Enns, who uh, was removed or left uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, because of his denial of the inerrancy of Scripture. And part of that was, um, was that um, he, he believed in evolution, and he denies now the existence of Adam at all. He thinks he's simply a myth and that the Genesis and Exodus are myths. Now, he has had some p- support within the PCA. One, I know one church that support, sub- has supported him and called him a missionary, who is uh, bringing, apparently, uh, uh, the gospel of something um, to, uh, to our land, and uh, they, are, they have supported him. And so that's been a part of our, um, of our issues within the PCA. And he spoke relatively recently at one presbytery, along with two secular scientists and a professor from Covenant Theological Seminary on how to reconcile evolution uh, the ideas of evolution with the Bible, and he presented his his view that Adam is mythological, and uh, and argued that in before their presbytery. Now, the other the other person who has been involved in biologos um, 
is uh, is Tim Keller, who is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And there has been some questions as to his exact involvement with Biologos. For a while, he was listed as a leading figure who supported the Biologos position on the Biologos website. But what what's interesting is that uh, a few months ago, he was he he was removed, um, or he no longer was there, and uh, so he's no longer listed as a leading figure of Biologos. But um, and so some people wondered if he was distancing himself um, from uh, Biologos, but uh, uh, he had been involved in in these conferences that Biologos has, uh, which is. Um, called the uh, Theology of Celebration 1, 2, and 3 in 2010, 2011, 2012. Right. He had participated in making statements and so on. And then in, uh, in March 20th to 22nd in New York, um, there was one of these Theology of Celebration conferences, which oddly enough uh, was, uh, they met under the proviso that their names would not be publicized without permission. But several of them did, and one of the, uh, apparently give their permission. And in an article on Christianity Today, they described this meeting, and <laughs> Tim Keller apparently spoke at this meeting, and uh, he was he argued against uh, young earth creationism, and says um, we have arguments, but they have a narrative. Noted Tim Keller. This is from the Christianity Today article. And then he says, both young earth creationists and atheistic evolutionists tell a story tapping into an existing cultural narrative of decline. To develop a biologos narrative is the job of pastors, Keller said. And so apparently, that's the end of the quote. Uh, well, so, what, go ahead. well, what exactly is a biologos narrative? Well, I think it's an, it's an, the biologos narrative is, is showing how Christianity and the biologos view, which is theistic evolution, uh, can fit together. So that's, in other words, a broad cultural narrative that brings together why uh, theistic evolution and the Bible are can be brought together. <laughs> so you know, I, it just sounds to me like when you, when you you know you listen to the discussion and you you know the the terminology we're using now, biologos. Okay, that's a new term. Uh, put forth to our generation and uh, okay that sounds new but when you really examine it it doesn't sound real there's really nothing new here no it's, it's just evolution period. it's just repackaged nonsense that was dealt with in the 19th century and the 20th century and now here we are in the 21st century we're dealing with it again and um Anyway, sorry, I had to interject that because I want most heresies, most errant doctrine is just repackaged old errant doctrine that has new words, but it still comes out the same at the end of the day, and it sounds to me like that's all we're doing again here. But but this has some momentum, does it not? Yeah, right. And well, let, let me just say too. Uh, so, but the more came out about that latest conference and. We've got to see what the momentum is, and that that theology of celebration three conference. Basically, the whole theme was that um, that the evangelical church was basically going into apostasy um, because so many people believed in young earth creationism, 
and they and they lamented this and they said we have an earnest desire for change we've got to deli- basically um, deliver the church from um, its theistic evol- from its from non-theistic evolution that's what um, Michael Kruger um, who's professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte when he read about the conference and, and how they how they uh, were saying they wanted to basically go to war with those who opposed evolution, he says, quote, in essence, Biologos is on a quest to rescue the church from non-theistic evolutionists, end quote. That's what, what people would gather easily from reading what they were doing. Now, one of the things that we find out, too, is not only that was uh, uh, Tim Keller there, but he was actually the host of this conference. He was the, the host uh, for this conference in New York um, that is lamenting the fact that the church is not, uh, doesn't hold evolution and desires to change that. And that is the, the mission of Biologos. So it does touch the PCA, and it's an uncomfortable subject, and people don't want to talk about that um, because um, Tim Keller is well-liked. He's popular. He's written a lot of books and has a big church. And uh, so that's, it's, it's a thorny subject, and it's going to be. But nonetheless, <clears throat> the issue is there, and that's, we're going to have to deal with it one way or another because it's going to cause conflict. And it's, it is, it, it is urge, Biologos would be a different stand than the Presbyterian Church, especially the Southern Presbyterian Church and the PCA, have taken historically. Now, as a result, sorry about that, as a result, there's been... Oh, there has been reaction. Um, people haven't just sat back and said, well, there goes Tim Keller doing what Tim Keller does. Um, it, there's been responses made by various presbyteries in the PCA as a result of this conference especially, um, but, as, but in particular just the, the entire subject uh, as a whole. Um, so what is happening now as, in the denomination as we approach um, General Assembly and as um, elders and teaching elders, ruling elders get together um, in June to dis- well this month to discuss the subject. What's going on now? Well, I think I need to clarify something uh, before I answer that question. That sure. is that these reactions that we're talking about that we're, that I'm going to mention are not necessarily a response to what Tim Keller did um, because it's only recently that his relationship with Biologos has actually been clarified uh, to a much greater degree. And now, so these overtures, the the General Assembly is going to deal with what we call overtures, which are basically requests for action from lower courts, our presbyteries, going to the General Assembly, and the General Assembly is, is, uh, will consider and debate them. And so we have, um, going back to January, uh, the these uh, uh, these overtures on this topic. So it's not really a specific response to uh, Tim Keller, but more a general response to the phenomenon of biologos and the need to uh, oppose what it is doing and to reaffirm our historic stand against evolution. So with that that said, uh, what what we have is that. Two presbyteries of the uh, Presbyterian Church in America have sent up overtures, 
asking the General Assembly to basically reaffirm the position of 1886 and 1888 uh, of the PCUS. Specifically, quote, that Adam and Eve were created body and soul by immediate acts of almighty power thereby preserving a perfect race unity. That Adam's body was directly fashioned by Almighty God without any natural animal parentage of any kind out of matter previously created from nothing. And so what, it, what it's saying is that we, we look at our history, we see that the, the conservative Presbyterian Church with which we find uh, a kindred spirit and a history mm -hmm. took this stand against evolution and against an evolutionary ancestry of Adam and it was the rejection of that view that led to the formation of the PCA and because we continue to deal with that even in our own church we want to say that we still hold to the old view that we still hold to a rejection of an evolutionary ancestry of Adam and to the immediate creation of Adam, body, and soul. <clears throat> and so that's what these overtures are asking that we do. Now it's interesting that, um, that there's another overture related to these that asks that we reject these overtures from Rocky Mountain Presbyterian, Savannah River Presbyterian, that 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 ask us to make to reaffirm this old statement against evolution, and it's from a Potomac Presbytery, and they ask that, the, that we reject this overture. Now, what they say is they don't say, well, you should reject this overture because we believe in evolution, which I don't think any of them do. As far, uh, any of them hold evolution, as far as I know. What they say is we shouldn't make these types of statements. We just shouldn't make statements as a General Assembly. We should wait until they come up as in court cases, so to speak. But the odd thing about this overture is that it uses statements made by the General Assembly <laughs> to argue its point. And we've seen that the General Assembly already did this in 1999, in 2000. And, of course, the old uh, PCUS General Assembly... Uh, made this statement in 1886 and 1888, and then affirmed it. And they and it wasn't. They were just saying, let's reaffirm what we said before, and just to show people that this is our mindset. So really, we're not asking anything to do anything than, uh, um, or we, I should say, because I I do feel I I support these overtures. The um, Rocky Mountain Presbyterian Savannah uh, River Presbytery uh, overtures are really not asking the General Assembly to do anything than than what's been done before in the history of Presbyterianism and even more recently in terms of the PCA. So it's really an odd overture that they're saying, no, we shouldn't say anything on anything. And here's, and we'll prove that by showing you what the GA has said on things. So it's, a, it's an odd overture, but um, for some reason they felt the need to make it on this one. Yeah, I, well, I'm glad you used the word odd because that was going to be my word. Um, <laughs> I, I, when General Assembly makes statements of this nature, it does have a have a way of at least um, encouraging the church, comforting the church in some respects as it pertains to these matters. 
um, that this is where we are. Um, have no fear. We're, we're not drifting away from the biblical understanding of these, of these issues. Um, to say nothing until it comes up in a judicial case, uh, the, the church at large may never hear of the judicial case, and so it has no way of pastorally shepherding the church at large on these kinds of issues. Um, right. So I, I just don't understand why a press. I guess the question I would want to ask a presbyter that didn't want a statement made is, why not? I mean, what harm can it do for the general assembly to say this is where we are, and this is where we need we are, and, and this is the reason why we're here? What harm can that do? Yeah. I mean, why yeah. are they afraid of that? It seems to me it'd be like saying if you had questions on the doctrine of the Trinity in your local church saying, well, let's not say anything as a session. Let's not put any statement together. Let's not preach on it. Let's not do any Sunday school on it. Let's just wait until we hear someone say it and then we'll deal with it through church discipline. Right. That seems yeah. complete, it, why would you do that? Discipline, discipline is, is the last resort you, or, or in terms of specific charges and so on what your hope is you could teach people and then avoid ever having to do that yeah it would seem like uh we'll just wait for someone to to deny the trinity and then we'll whack them over the head because they didn't understand because they because they didn't understand the things we didn't teach them right exactly (laughs) (laughs) that's clear as mud but yeah I, i understand totally what you're saying so in your opinion where do you think uh, we're at as a denomination facing this general assembly. Do you think this is going to be capture a great deal of attention um, this year, or will it be tabled until a further date, to a later date? Well, I, d- I don't think it'll be tabled. Um, I mean, I suppose that's a possibility. People could always refer it to a study committee of some sort. That is a possibility. Um, I I just I don't see. I think in the PCA as a whole, I just don't see much opposition to it, even though it seems like a few people um, may wrestle with this or, or want to move us in a different direction. I think that the, the General Assembly taken as a whole is going to be very supportive of this action and, and, and be concerned that we not allow the evolutionary ideas um, that are presented all around us to come into our church. So. So my guess is that this will be received very well, though I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's significant debate. But, of course, you never can tell for sure. You know, people have to make up their own minds and, and uh, debate it, and, and it's hard to know all the nuances that will come into it before the debate actually begins. So, It, it, it does seem interesting, though, because I, mean, I can't help but run back. Every time I hear these kinds of discussions come up, I, you know, I, I, I run back to Chapter 4 of the Confession, and I read that thing again, and I think, what is so difficult here? What is so hard to understand about our confessional position on the subject? Um, it, it really does not take a, a theologian. It doesn't take a, a seminary student. It doesn't take uh, someone who is heavily educated in these matters to understand the confessional view of creation and the historicity of Adam. I, I, I don't understand why this be, it has become such a front and seat, front and center discussion. Uh, the confession seems relatively plain as to Adam's original, gener- you know, how he was originally created and 
Why do you think this is, other than the fact that Satan hates the church and he's going to do everything he can to disturb it, it it does seem silly, I think, in some sense, that this has become such a troublemaking point for us to spend so much energy on. Look, the confession is black and white, plain as day, as plain as the nose on your face. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, if you don't like it, if you think it's wrong, then neither work to change the confession or minister in another body of Christ's church, if you want to call it that, um, and don't trouble the church with these matters, because the confession is, is pretty black and white. Well, I, I would say, I think that it's the same with virtually any issue that is dominant in the culture. There's always a tendency in the church to bend to the world and let me put it let me put it in the best possible light i could and and try to say just to say why this would come up because I, I i feel the weight of this to some degree even though i don't i don't adopt their position and totally reject it mm-hmm. but i can understand why someone would say you know i want to be able to preach christ to someone without getting into the arguments for a young earth why, why or, or against evolution, or whatever the case may be. Um, something along those lines, or, or detailed exegesis of Adam's of creation. Because the real issue is what this person does with Christ. And so I don't want to be distracted by that. And so I think that that's probably the motivation. You know, put it in the most positive light, that people, that people feel that they don't want to have to be called to defend something that... It, that distracts them from the main issue of whether or not someone receives Christ for salvation. And, and you can also, the, the trouble with that, though, is that if this is really, there, there are going to be those issues that conflict with the biblical testimony um, that, uh, that are going to be issues that we're going to have to bring up and, and things that we're going to have to answer that are going to be awkward and are going to be you know, somewhat a distraction from the main issue um, but they do tie into it in such a way that we can't just ignore it, and it is God's word, and, and ultimately the issue is man's rebellion against God and his need to submit to that. So, right. But uh, take another example that, uh, from another realm, um, and I think we're going to see this more and more. Uh, any, any church that stands for the biblical view of marriage is going to be seen as political and is going to, and, and is going to be seen as, as the church that opposes gay marriage and thus by extension is apparently against homosexuals. And so you can understand that someone would say, no, that the main issue is whether they receive Christ or not. You know, we don't want to get into that debate. And so let's, you know, let's try to shove that off to the side so that that doesn't become a distraction from the main work of the church, which is showing the love of Christ and, and, uh, and doing good for these people in the world they might see the goodness of god and come to him for salvation mm-hmm. so th- those are the temptations that are there and and i think that that some people that that is the motivation that we we don't want to make this an issue that we have to fight on and in addition we know that for example if we teach on the biblical view of marriage we're going to alienate some people in our community and do we want to alienate them over uh our position on marriage, or do we alienate them on Christ? So, in that, is there I, a difference? I, I, of course, I think it's a false dichotomy. I'm just trying to say 
why I think this is why I think this is an issue. So I'm not okay. trying to persuade you the opposite. No, I was going to say, I'm, certainly, certainly, there's no difference uh, ultimately in those in those issues. Um, you're right. It's not. Yeah, it's not a. It, that would be a false. I would definitely classify that as a false dichotomy of of sorts. Um, but but you know I, I'll throw out a third reason, and 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 just you know thinking off the top of my head, the propensity to be well known and to be influential and to be um, known as a, a intellectual, and the temptation that is often comes with that world of academia is is very large, and I think in some cases. Um, I wouldn't be surprised in the least if it was this pursuit, this this unmet psychological need to pursue this 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 notoriety in the academic community, um, both from both from the theological religious community as well as the secular humanistic community. And 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 isn't that what theistic evolution tries to do? Really, doesn't it try to marry up those two communities together so that there's no real conflict? Yeah. Well. And I, I said I was going to try and put it in the best possible light. I'm not saying that there's not other lights in which you could put it. Well, yeah, so, I, I am. I think that okay. you, you you got your finger on some of it. You know, if you if you're in a community in which you, uh, like mine, in which uh, there's a there's a university uh, just up the hill from me, in which there are many people who are going to hold evolution, you know, and I oppose evolution. They're going to look down on me, and my position in the community is definitely going to be diminished, and I'm going to be seen as a fundamentalist. So, you know, our position in the community or in academia or whatever the case may be is certainly going to be diminished, and we do have that uh, desire to be accepted by the world. Sure. Well, yeah, and I think the temptation's real. I just think it, you know, I mean, I, I think it'd be foolhardy just to dismiss that as a, as one of the possible causes for these kinds of issues. Since we oh, mentioned no. the, since we mentioned theistic evolution, um, and we're running short on time, but I, I do want to get uh, talk maybe briefly um, about that subject because, as I said earlier, and I think you agreed with this, the reality is is that this is this is just theistic evolution wearing different clo- different clothing. Um, you know, it, it's just painted differently. But it, it, at the end of the day, when you strip it all down. Um, we're dealing with the same problem. We're dealing with the same issue of, of, of what theistic evolution, the problems that it causes. Um, so when we talk about theistic evolution, since we've re- used that word multiple times in this discussion, what do we mean? Well, I, I'm not even sure they're trying to avoid being called theistic evolutionists. So you would say that they're, 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 they're deliberately trying to align themselves and be classified as such. From what I can tell, I, I think now that you say it, I do know that some of them have shied away from that term. That opens up a whole other can of worms. But basically, I, I, I haven't seen Biologos as a whole shying away from that term. Um, but um, so, so I don't think I wouldn't I wouldn't put it quite that way. It seems like they're just promoting theistic evolution. I'm just calling that version of theistic evolution Biologos, just because it's a new movement. That is seeking to push that. Oh yeah, agreed. I mean, if they if you know if they wanted if they came right out and said we're going to have a theo, a theistic evolution conference, people would be immediately repudiated, you know, immediately repulsed sure. by that concept. So they put another fancy term on it, which is 
in itself intriguing because it's an unknown term, and so it creates interest. Right. I mean, just by the by the virtue of it, by the virtue of the fact that it's called something that no one's ever heard of before. But when you really examine it, at the end of the day, this is what you have. And so what is it that we have? We have this marrying up of God's creative acts using evolutionary processes to uh, 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 to uh, populate the earth, use Adam as the means, or a tribe of men, as it were, um, to do this. Um, is that not what theistic evolution right. is? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I fully agree, and I, don't, I, don't, I think it's just like they're, they're saying... It's not like they're, it's like a car with a new name. It's not like they're trying to disguise the fact that it's a car. There's just, this is the new name. They're not just calling it the old, good old Chevy. They're giving it this new name. So, but they're not disguising the fact that it's a car. So this is, they're not disguising this, the fact that it's theistic evolution. They're just, you know, it's just basically a marketing name, Biologos. So when you say theistic evolution, then classically, what do we mean? to believe that the diversity of life is explained by um, biological evolution rather than direct creation of kinds by God. Um, that's um, macro, uh, in other words, macroevolution. And also it includes um, a view that, that Adam or man in some way is also evolved uh, from lower life forms whatever process God might have used to differentiate him, he still is, he, he is um, a part of the, he has a common ancestry with all of their animals. So, so God invented the, pro, invented, <laughs> God invented, God created the processes and then the processes ran their course and what we are now is a result. Right. Sounds, well, <laughs> uh, you know, we don't have another hour to, to talk about that, but to be honest, um, uh, that whole thing requires far more faith, in my opinion, than um, simply believing God spoke it and it it, it happened. Um, uh, and I don't need to convince you of that. Obviously, you believe that, um, right? But but there are people who don't, and they may listen to this program and they may think, well, you guys just aren't intellectually informed. Uh, well, be that as it may, and that's probably true. I'm probably not intellectually informed. That's, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But I do know this, that it takes far more faith, in my estimation, to believe in that kind of a process, which is wrought with all kinds of possibilities, than to believe that one God, personal in nature and being, created out of nothing, the world in six days, and out of the ground, dust of the ground, he created Adam, and from him he created Eve. That is not hard for me to get my mind around. Um, as opposed to, if I have to compare it to, well, God set this process in motion, then set back and watch it kind of unfold in, in different layers and spheres over millions of years. I, 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 can't, I can't comprehend that. Um, take religion around the table, I still couldn't comprehend that. Yeah. Well, and... Uh... I know uh, John MacArthur, I remember him saying, he says, God didn't create by evolution because evolution is impossible. So that was his, his view. So whether you agree with that or not, the point is that there's problems with even thinking of evolution. Well, I would so agree with him. But, but I, in that? I would agree with his statement, but I'm not quite sure I understand it. Yeah, me neither. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, evolution is impossible. <laughs> but I'm, not sure what, I'm not sure what the point is. Uh, but anyway... 
Um, well, this has been an interesting discussion, I think, and I think the church needs to have more of these discussions because, as we indicated in the beginning of the of the broadcast, um, this was one of those points in church history. And, and you know, and, and allow me to make a plug for church history. Um, number one, I really love studying church history. Um, so, fine. Number two, uh, if we don't understand our historical roots, um, these kinds of issues will slip in under the radar, and before we have a chance to respond to them, they will already done their damage. Um, this has been dealt with. The church has has already been has dealt with this issue. Um, they've made definitive statements throughout the years, and we need to make the same definitive statement today that has been made in the past, and we need not go the way of the 1924 decision to basically say, oh, well, we were wrong. Uh, you know, 69. I'm sorry, 69. You're right, 69. I don't know. I, I got chicken scratch all over my paper here. <laughs> so, um, but yes, I mean, it, it, it. we need to understand our historical roots and need to understand w- the errors that were made, why they were made, and how to avoid them now. But we have to have an understanding of it. And frankly, I, I think the church has forgotten a lot of these situations that have happened in the past. And um, we need to go back to that and say, hey, the church has dealt with this. Um, in the same sense, we, wouldn't, we would do the same thing if someone th- threatened the deity of Christ, which we know happens quite often. We just doesn't get a lot of press because we, we regard it as silliness, and it's been debunked um, umpteen times. Um, but that continues, and we look at that situation, and we say, well, historically, the church dealt with it here, 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 and here. These groups, these groups, these groups, these groups tried to unseat the deity of Christ, and it's been answered time and time again in this way. It's no different for this subject. And the church just needs to stand up and do that. And yes, I do agree with those two overtures. They need to make definitive statements and give guidance to the church and, and, and shepherd them in these matters and, and warn even their members to avoid this kind of nonsense that goes on in the church that's troubling the church. And that's what it's doing. It's troubling the church, and it needs to stop. And the only way it's going to stop is if our elders and pastors stand up and do that. So I don't understand Potomac's Presbyterian's Overture. And, um, so I hope that happens at the GA. Um, I wish I could be there. I would be there as an observer, but I would like to be there anyway. Um, but you are attending... Yes, sir. Well, I'm assuming. So, yes, and I'll be reporting on it on my website. Yeah, you've done that a few times now over the, mm-hmm. over the years. And um, so I'll look forward to those discussions. Any closing remarks, maybe some resources that, you know, someone's interested in understanding this issue more, um, where they might go and read? I mean, my first recommendation was just read the, read the fathers of the church, read the historical documents that have been produced and, and see that this is not a new subject. Um, it's just got a different set of clothes, as it were. Um, but any other resources or suggestions? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, one of the things, I, I do think it would be helpful to listen to those, uh, the tapes from the conference in 1999 from Greenville. And I'm not just saying that because this is a podcast from Greenville. I, I've been listening to those and, and found them quite helpful uh, in this discussion, particularly the discussions on the Woodrow case, are given by a, a, a guy from RTS, Jackson, and Duncan Rankin. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, at the end of his statement, 
he, he's happy, this is 1999, that we haven't seen theistic evolution come in, but he warns that but this is a really <laughs> a real possibility, and we need to be on, on uh, guard uh, against that. And so I think that that's, uh, it, it, was, it was just intriguing to me to hear him say that, and didn't need to be a great prophet to figure that out, but uh, nonetheless, uh, though I'm sure Duncan Rankin is, and nonetheless, that's a, those are lectures worth listening to. Absolutely. And I will try to make those available on our website, um, a website that I'm doing, well, it's another website that I'm doing for the seminary that's going to house some of these items more in a more centralized location um, for ease of reference and use for the podcast specifically. Um, but that has not yet been released, so just stay tuned to this podcast, and when I do actually release it, I will let everybody know so you can use it to your benefit and edification, as it were. Wes, it's been great talking with you about these things. I wish we had more time to talk about it. We've gone long as it is, um, but I think these discussions are going to continue, and I hope they do continue, Um, but with a mind and an understanding that these discussions have been had before, and um, the church just needs to be definitive and not tolerate any monkeying around with these issues. As, as you indicated earlier, it's a, it's a critical issue because it affects so many other things that we hold so dear and so to be so true from the scriptures. And we start tinkering with the foundation. What do we have left? So I appreciate you being on to talk about this topic and I'll look forward to the reports of GA. I will, I will personally try to watch the, proceedings during the live stream that they usually do. Um, but um, anyway, we'll look forward to your reports well, thank as, you. as well. Why don't you give your website address again for those who listen so they can go and read more about what you're doing. Actually, you're kind of going through the historical formation of the PCA and doing some of the background work already. So if people are looking for a place to start, they can start there and start reading some of the material. But why don't you give your website? Yeah, my more. website is uh, www.westwhite dot net w e s w h i t e dot net or you could just look up my name on google west white and it'll be the first one that pops up so um yeah uh, thank you uh, for having me here bill i enjoyed talking with you as well yes thank you let me give everybody a little bit of an update what's going on on uh, the podcast next week i'll be having two discussions um one is a reschedule from one that i was supposed to do a few weeks back but i canceled and moved um because i had finals Sorry, I was busy. Um, but that's coming up Monday. Um, I'm not going to say who it is right now. You just have to listen and find out. But that's coming up Monday, June 4th. Is it the 4th? I think it's the 4th. And then that week also I'll be talking with uh, Pastor Ryan McGraw. He is the pastor of um, a PCA church down in Conway, South Carolina, who wrote a book on the Lord's Day. And um, I've read it, or portions of it, and it's a very good treatment Um comes at it from a different angle than um, some of the other treatments that have been done in the past. So I'll be talking with him about that very timely subject, one that's still, it's still a subject that needs to be discussed and, uh, de- and strongly uh, dealt with. And so I look forward to that discussion as well. So that's two broadcasts next week. And um, so we hope you've enjoyed this particular edition, um, one that we haven't obviously plumb the depths of this conversation. However, we've talked enough about it that perhaps you've come away with a better understanding of things or you've been more interested in understanding things 
from a historical perspective in the church. Either way, um, take this as information and use it. Go and look at what's going on in the church. Pay attention, because this is how air creeps in. It happens when people aren't paying attention. So read church history, pay attention to what's going on, and um, be aware, because um, Satan never rests. We may rest. He's not resting. And the church is opposed by him. And so we need to be vigilant. So be vigilant. Take this information, use it, go look at it, and understand what the scriptures teach. And I think you'll be edified in that pursuit. So until next week, when we talk with Gabe Floor, who is the next guest on the podcast, we do thank everybody for listening to this particular edition. And God